This morning, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be finishing up this chapter this morning as we keep, our, keep going step by step through this letter from Paul to his friends. If you don't have a Bible, I want to invite you to take one that we've provided for you. We've got them on the, the middle of each aisle, up on, uh, under the chairs. Uh, somebody sitting on the edge would be happy to pass that down to you. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to take that one. And then we'd love to talk to you later about what you read there. If there's anything that doesn't make sense or any questions you have about Jesus. If you're visiting us this morning, you're catching us at the end of chapter 4 of a letter that we've been studying together since the beginning of the year. We're going to be studying it through early summer, taking our time, walking through it piece by piece. And one of the things we've been seeing in this letter, one of the things that the Apostle Paul's been talking about a lot has been affliction suffering the problems of life he's talking about affliction again in the passage we've come to this morning the last several verses of chapter four he's still talking about that same subject and what he says this time you're probably not going to like or at least not at first i want to challenge you as we get ready to walk through these three verses together i want to challenge you to withhold judgment while we work through the details. Christianity, friends, Christianity is no good to any of us. And you need to hear this this morning if you've been a Christian for a long time or if you're evaluating Christianity. You need to hear, Christianity is no good to any of us if it can't offer us a different perspective than the one we have already. If it can't challenge what we take for granted. If it can't offer another take on the things that we assume about our life, about the world, about what's good and right, about what is. And in this case, if we can learn to align our perspective with the perspective of the Bible, I think you'll find, I know you'll find, joy and hope. Not because your problems go away, but because you're able to see them in the light of glory. This passage, these last three verses of chapter four, it's one extended compare and contrast. It's full of comparisons. I want to read it so that you can see this. If we read these three verses, I want you to notice every time two things are being compared with one another. Then we're going to come back over them and tag all those places to make sure that you can see it. I want you to see what Paul is comparing, what we should be comparing. And then I want us to look at how we can make the right comparison. That's all we're going to do this morning. I want to begin by by reading it, though. Would you please stand with me in honor of God's word? Just a simple way that we can honor the fact that God has spoken to us in the Bible. I want to begin reading in chapter 4, verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to begin by making sure you see Paul on his terms, what we should and really what we shouldn't be comparing. The whole passage, 
It's full of comparisons. Hopefully you saw that. I want to make sure it's clear what we should be comparing so that we also see what we should not be comparing. I don't want to begin by just bringing out a few of the places that Paul is making comparisons. I want to, I want to do this like a cop working a crime scene. You, you, you know, there's crime, there's crime shows on every night of the week on every single network, back to back to back to back. So you know what I'm talking about. You know how they, when they're analyzing a crime scene, they'll just go around with these little flags or those little like sandwich board numbered signs and, and put the flag or the little sign over everything they want somebody to come back to to try to make some sense out of later. And here's the things that are important. We don't know how yet. This is what's here. And we'll come back and try to make some sense of it. I want to do that through these verses. Just tag the things that we need to notice. Make sure that on their own that they're clear what Paul's trying to get at. And then, trust me, we're going we're to come back over it and make sure that we, we can tie it all together and make some sense out of the whole. Let's walk through the weeds together, describe a couple of them, and then, and then we'll bring it to a point. So what are the comparisons here, beginning in verse 16? Well, here's one. Paul compares the outer self that's the way my version says it. Yours might say outer nature or outer man. And the inner self or the inner nature or the inner man. What's he say about them? Well, the outer self, he says, is wasting away. It means being destroyed. The inner self is being renewed day by day. And when you first read this, outer self, outer man, outer nature versus inner self, inner man, Probably the first thing you think is, for Paul, the body, bad. Spirit, soul, good. As if he's just some sort of ancient Greek philosopher who who thought that anything that was material was just holding you back from the real true life, which no one can see and touch. That's actually not how Paul thinks about the world at all. We're going to look at a passage next week where it's really clear. That's not what he's thinking. He wants a body. He just wants one that's not going to die. Paul's not talking about the difference between material bodies and an inner soul that's the real you. In Paul's Paul's version of of what humans are, the, the soul and the body always go together. You're always a whole. What he's describing is the difference between something that's passing away and something that's coming. Between an era defined by mortality, by the fact that we die, that we waste away, and an era defined by renewal, Right now, Paul's saying, we live in this overlapping time where we're part of both eras. And Jesus has been raised from the dead. That started something brand new, something that he's promised he can give to anyone who's with him. If we're with Jesus, that means we have a kind of inner man, an inner self, an inner nature that belongs with Jesus in his resurrection. But we also still live in these bodies that are breaking down. Our outer nature is wasting away, isn't it? Do you feel that? Can you see it in your life? Have you stopped long enough with the rat race that you're running to pay attention to what's changing? I remember the first time I noticed my hair was getting thin. I stepped out of the shower in front of the mirror uh, and thought, hmm, that's going to be a problem. (laughs) I remember it like it was yesterday. I was 21 years old. Two or three years ago, I mean two or three months ago, not years ago, months ago. Maybe it was actually less than that, I don't know. You can see my mind is wasting away. I threw my back out. I've been throwing my back out since college. That's not new. This time, I threw it out without doing anything. Literally did nothing. I got up from my couch where I had been sitting for like three hours. 
I walked out to my yard where I was going to hang out with my kids. And as I'm standing there, just like I'm standing right now, I felt it go. I have no idea what happened. I'm 34. Now, there are some of you out there who could get up here and give us some real examples of a body that's wasting away. But all of us have bodies that are wasting. Sometimes we think about our lives as a kind of ladder that we climb, starting at birth, moving into elementary school, learning to read, going on to high school, getting whatever skills you get there, I don't know, (laughs) college, graduate school, whatever profession you want. We're climbing that ladder, family, get married maybe, maybe have kids. We think of our lives as a ladder that we climb, it just goes up. The reality, friends, is that a much better image for our lives is as one of those skiers who's taken a fall on a mountain covered in thick, packed snow headed for the edge of a cliff, digging his heels in, trying to slow it down, trying to do anything to stop it, grabbing at limbs, throwing the pick into the ice, nothing making any difference, just That's, what I, that's what's happening to us. Our life, is not, our life is not a renewable resource. Every breath you've taken is one breath closer to the last breath that you'll take. If you're not with Jesus this morning, friend, I want to speak directly to you about this. Have you paid attention to that truth? I know a lot of you in here are really young. It's easy when you're young not to pay attention to the truth. But it's foolish Your life is wasting away. It's got a fixed content and you're draining it with every breath. But Paul says, our inner nature, the inner man, the inner self, that self that belongs with the new era that started on Easter morning, when Jesus walked out of his tomb. Well, that one, that's being renewed day by day by day. There's one comparison. The outer man versus the inner man, or inner self. Let's tag another one. Verse 17 gives us a different one. Explaining a little bit further what he says in verse 16, this difference between the outer self that's wasting away, everything that's mortal versus everything that's being renewed constantly, what is only ever being drained, what is only ever and always being renewed. Now he's going to explain a little more about that comparison. For this light momentary affliction, think the outer self that's wasting away, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory Beyond all comparison, think the inner self that's being renewed day by day by day. What's the comparison here? It's a perfectly balanced sentence. Did you notice this? Look at light over against weight. Momentary over against eternal. Glory over against affliction. Think about Paul as, 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 as picturing one of those old-timey scales, you know, not the digital kind that you step onto in your bathroom, but the kind that they used to use to measure, like, 
like spices or what have you at an old market or like the scales of justice you know the two plates dangling from a chain and a bar on an arm that's balanced until you put stuff on it and then you so, so imagine Paul throwing your affliction on one boom it's over here he throws glory on the other boom over here he adds light over here he adds the weight over here he adds momentary over here he adds eternal when he's finished with his comparison glory is way down here affliction is way up here do you see what he's doing what he wants you to compare is the afflictions you have let's just call them the problems of life you fill in the blank you know what he's talking about he wants you to compare the problems of life with the promise of glory now we've got our evidence tagged hopefully each piece makes sense I want to bring it together what should we be comparing I've already said we need to be preparing. What Paul is comparing is the, the problems of life to the promise of glory. And I think probably you're already, maybe some of you at least, shrinking back a little bit from that. Already, it might be pushing you away. Light momentary affliction? I don't know who he's talking about, but he's not talking about me. Maybe your affliction doesn't seem light at all. Maybe some of you are dealing with an affliction that is far from momentary. There are some of you dealing with chronic diseases or pain that isn't going to end from now to the rest of your life, to to the last day that you live. Momentary? Be a fair question for you to ask of Paul. That's why we need to make sure we distinguish what he's saying here from what we might expect him to say. We need to understand what he is comparing so we don't confuse it with what he is not comparing, what he does not want us comparing. So if Paul were saying what he's saying here, if he were describing light, momentary affliction over here and an eternal weight of glory over here, if what he were doing when he's comparing these two things is trying to minimize your light momentary affliction, the problems of your life. Nothing to see here, folks. Don't worry about these problems. Just get over it. If that's all he were trying to say, he'd probably do it the way we do it. When we try to minimize our problems or the problems somebody else has, when we try to tell them to get over it, we're probably going to compare what they're dealing with, their problem, with what could be, right? And we're going to say something like, it could be so much worse. I mean, just think about how much worse it could be. What are, you, what are you all hung up on? You've got it good. We might say something like that. Or we might compare it, not to what could be, but to what is for somebody else. We might say, why are you so hung up on that? Have you considered what other people are dealing with? Have you considered how much worse? Fill in the blank. There's always somebody you could look at who's got it hard in some way you don't. And if you want to tell somebody to just get over it, you'd probably make that sort of comparison. Paul is not making that sort of comparison. He's not comparing our problems to what could be and how much worse they could be. He's not comparing our problems to what is for other people and how much worse other people have it. He's not trying to shame anybody. He's not trying to make anyone feel like what they're dealing with isn't important. Paul knows there's no power in those sorts of comparisons and so he doesn't draw them. Paul wants us comparing our problems to glory, only to glory. 
Not to what could be, not to what is for others, but to what will be for us in Christ. It's only against glory that affliction is light. It's only against glory that affliction is momentary. He's not downplaying our problems. He's playing up glory. He doesn't want us believing lies about affliction. Faith never stands on falsehood. He's not, he doesn't need to chop our suffering down to size to get us to believe in Jesus. That's not what he's doing. He doesn't want to make us believe lies about affliction. He wants to make us believe truth about glory. He wants us using a better imagination to see what is now in light of what will be then. That's the perspective that'll make a difference. Here's an image that helped me a lot. I, I can't take credit for this. I came across it in a book, but I think it's really helpful. Imagine two women working the same exact job and it's not a pleasant job. Let's imagine it, say, in, a, in an old factory, maybe, an assembly line of some sort, no windows, loud noises, some sort of belt that brings pieces by that they've got to pick up and put somewhere else. A lot of bending over, picking up heavy things, wearing them out. 10 minute breaks twice a day, maybe 20 for lunch. Every day the same as the one before. Imagine that job. There's some real affliction there. Now imagine one person, one of these two women, knows that she'll be paid $30,000 at the end of the year. She can work this job every day for a year. She'll get 30 grand. And imagine the other woman knows that if she works this job every day for a year, she'll get 30 million. Now, identical jobs. But do you think that those two women experience their problems in the same way? No. One of them's got a powerful, weighty glory on the other end of this affliction. Knows that it's this affliction, it's this day in, day out grind that is securing for her this weight of glory. It's getting her there. She's got a radically different perspective on the exact same circumstances as the other woman, doesn't she? Perspective matters. How you think about things matters. If you want perspective on the problems of your life, I think what Paul's saying is, through these comparisons, I think what Paul's saying is, if you want perspective on the problems of your life, you need to spend less time looking at your problems and more time looking at what he's promised. His call is summarized in verse 18. Look not at what is seen. There's no future there. You can pick your problems apart. You can agonize over them. You can analyze them. You can try to bring some mastery to them through in-depth, detailed, specific knowledge. You can let them consume all of your attention. If you want to, you can do that. You can focus on what is seen. Or, Paul says, as we look not to the things that are seen, to the things that are unseen, you can focus on the glory to come. The way this verse is translated kind of undersells it a little bit. 
just says, look not to the things that are seen, to the things that are unseen. The word actually has more nuance than that in the original language, the Greek that it was originally written in. It's to estimate, the, here's how one, one scholar put it. This is a word that has a certain nuance to it. It has to do with estimating the worth of an object. Evaluating it. Think of it as the, the, the detailed, intimate knowledge. The burning stare. The evaluation of a, a possible husband-to-be over the diamond that he wants to buy for his fiancée. Imagine the attention of that man on that stone estimating its value, looking for every possible angle on it, wanting to know it inside and out. And think about yourself giving that kind of attention to the promises of glory. That's where you get this perspective Paul's calling for. That's what you should be comparing the problems of your life to. But how do we get there? Friends, that's where I want to spend the rest of our time. hopefully this is pretty clear what Paul wants us to compare is problems to glory problems of life promise of glory that's what he that's the only comparison he's into not comparing ourselves to each other not comparing ourselves to any sort of hypothetical future compare what is now to what will be then that's it but how in the world do we get there it's easier said than done isn't it Maybe you're convinced that you'd like to take on this perspective. You'd like to switch, let me use the image we used earlier. You'd like to switch what's in audio and what's in video. If, you're, if your life right now has some serious weighty problems that you're facing and they're in streaming vivid high definition 24-7 in your mind, maybe you'd like to flip the script, put them in audio and the promises of Jesus in video or that's what you're seeing. But that's easier said than done. I mean, what's seen is so visible, isn't it? That's the problem. Paul wants us to look not at what's seen, but what isn't. But what's seen is so visible. What's promised is so invisible. So how? I think verse 18 shows us the way. The way to make this comparison. The way to compare our problems to glory rather than to lives other people are living or to what we had hoped for or what could have been to compare our problems to glory. I think verse 18 shows us the way. Not a sort of formula. It's more about mental discipline. It's how to think properly. How to cultivate, if you will, the proper imagination. Verse 18, Paul says, for, he's explaining why we want to look at the, not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. He's explaining why this comparison is the right one. Why it's so important. For, he says, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. If we want to get to the place where we can think of our problems in light of his promises and have his promises set the lens through which we view everything, then we need to remember that the things that are seen where we're wasting away are transient. They're not forever. They're dying even now. But the things that are not seen are eternal. I want to look at both sides of that verse If you want help making the right comparison in your life, the first thing you need to do is pay attention to death. Pay attention to what's transient, to the passing away of this outer self. And then, once you've used that awareness to sort of wipe the deck, then you're ready to pay close attention to glory and to the eternal life that Jesus has promised. 
One of the reasons I think God's promises to us in Jesus are so often in audio, not in video, is that death is so often in audio and not in video. We are more insulated from the fact of death than any other people ever have been in the history of the world. People mostly die at advanced age. Life expectancy rates have dramatically increased even in the last 75 years. When people die, it's typically not in their homes. It's in some sort of sanitized medical facility that nobody goes to unless you work there or happen to know someone who's elderly in your life who is there. People aren't dying in their homes like they used to. They aren't dying in their youth like they used to. And thanks be to God that that's true. But it's coming to cost. It's carved out space for us to be tragically unrealistic about life in this world as it is. Because even though life expectancy may have extended, every life still ends the same way. If we don't pay attention to what Paul's calling us to, if we don't recognize that the things that are seen, where our problems are, that the things that are seen are transient, if we don't recognize that, then we might be naive. And here's what that would look like, friends. If we're not honest about death, we might have trouble imagining glory because we're naive about how glorious this life can be. We might actually overestimate how good things can be here. We can expect too much out of this life. When you don't pay attention to transience, to the fact that time only moves one direction and that because of time and death, everybody loses everything, you can actually think that you might be able to hold on to what you want. You can hold yourself back from recognizing that even if you get everything you want out of life, you're still gonna lose it. So, friends, sometimes when we're naive like this, we compare our problems to a world where we get everything we want and to a world where we lose nothing of what we have. Our standard is not transience, is not the certainty of death. We're not surprised by the fact that we have anything. We're actually surprised when we don't have everything we want. We don't recognize it from the perspective of death. Disappointment and loss and struggle, these things are normal. These things are inevitable. We live in a world that's wasting away. That means grief, futility, frustration. These things are unavoidable. So I wonder if if the theme in your life is to notice what's wrong more than what's right, what's hard more than what's a blessing. I wonder wonder if that might suggest a subconscious surprise in you at the normal struggles of life. For example, I have three healthy kids but they're unruly sometimes and they're exhausting all the time. I have central heat in my home. It costs a lot to turn it on. I have a wonderful home that I love. It costs me an arm and a leg to maintain it. I have a job that's exactly what I want, but it's often difficult and often takes more time than I wish it did. 
Now, if I'm only regularly talking about the negative side of these good things in my life, it shows that I may be surprised by the world not fitting my expectations perfectly. If I'm noticing how much my heat bill is, more than I notice the fact that I'm one of the only people in the history of the world, statistically, I'm one of the only people in the history of the world to have central heat in his home that I can turn on with a switch. That's not what I'm noticing, but I'm noticing how much it costs me to do that. It's probably a sign that subconsciously at least, I'm surprised that the world is wasting away, that it is not what I would design it to be if I had God's power. It's not what God would have made it to be if he had followed my advice. It's probably a sign that, to use Augustine's phrase, I'm seeking the happy life in the region of death. Friends, we need to recognize that where we live for now, where the outer nature is still wasting away, we shouldn't be surprised that things don't match what we want. One thing Paul means by light momentary affliction preparing glory is that honesty about hard things now is how we wean ourselves from unhealthy expectations about how pleasant and fulfilling this life should be. He says we look to the things that he says he says we look to, not to the things that are seen and reminds us that the things that are seen are transient so that our affliction in this world that is seen can keep us from bondage to a world that's not ever going to be what we ask of it. We need to accept and come to terms with the hard things about life to get ready to see glory and to long for it, to be hungry, even starving for it. And that's the next thing. That's the second half of Paul's phrase in verse 18. He's, he's telling us, he's pointing us the way. If you want a life where you see God's promises more clearly and vividly than you see your problems, or even better, that where, where God's promises way more to you and your heart than your problems do, without telling lies about your problems or pretending they're not real, if you want a life where you can be honest about them and still feel like his promises way more, then first you need to be honest about transience about the truth of this life, what it is, then you need to look hard at the things that are unseen, which are eternal. You need to long for eternity. Be honest about death so that you can be hopeful about resurrection. Those two things go hand in hand. I want to reflect for a couple minutes on glory. What is eternal? How do we see what is unseen? The fact that it's unseen is it feels like a huge problem to me. I didn't know where to even look for something that's defined by invisibility. I don't think we're helpless here. I don't think we're left without a guide. I want to give you a couple things that I think the scriptures call us to that'll help us long for the eternal, unseen world that will one day be revealed. I think you look for this unseen world everywhere your heart is crying out, no more. And you look for this unseen world everywhere your heart is crying out, more. That first one. Where do you look for this unseen world? 
Will you look everywhere in your experience that your heart is crying out, no more, please, no more. Earlier in the service, we read from Revelation chapter 21, one of the most beautiful descriptions of heaven. I don't know if you noticed this, but right at the heart of it, when the author is celebrating heaven, it's full of negative statements. What is this world gonna be like? Well, it's really hard to put it into words, but I can tell you what it won't be like. Death will be no more, he says. All that transience that's breaking your heart every day, gone, over, no more. No more crying, he says. No mourning, no pain. You want to long for heaven, for what you can't see? Pay attention to your body that's breaking down on you. Where are you hurting? Oh, there's your insight. You are longing, friend, for a world where your body doesn't feel the way it does now. Where do you see what's unseen? Who is it that you have mourned recently? Who has died that you love? No more. That's your opportunity. Cry out to God for a world where where people don't die anymore. Where are you frustrated, feeling incompetent? Where are you struggling with sin that won't go away? Where are you longing to be free Wherever your heart cries out, no more, you're getting a little bit of a glimpse into the unseen weight of glory that Jesus died to give you. Behold, Revelation 21 says, I am making all things new. Look where your heart cries out, no more. Here's another one. Where do you see these things that are unseen? How can I view my life in light of them? Look where your heart is crying out more. Not everything about this life is hard. The truth is, it's it's a mixed bag. This world is also full of beauty, of rapturous joy, of delightful things that we get to experience. The problem is that they just aren't lasting long enough. Think about what you love. Think about what gives you pleasure, what you're drawn to, what you want more of. And then think of glory, of what you can't see yet, as a place compared to which these things you love and enjoy now are just the faintest echo, just the slightest foretaste. Look in your experience, all throughout your experience, you have clues that you were made for more than what is passing away. A longing is built into you for something transcendent, something more than what you have now, something more than what could be lost to death. It's in the majesty of nature. It's in what you feel when you look at something powerful like the Grand Canyon or the ocean. It's in what you feel when you hear a new piece of music that you just can't get enough of. I remember being, a few years ago in grad school, I was in New York City for a conference, and when I was a student, I had to hook up for all sorts of cheap tickets to symphonies, some of the world's greatest symphony orchestras that I don't go to hear now. (laughs) Uh, I went, Lindsay and I went together in New York City to hear the New York Philharmonic up here for a conference. Got cheapo student tickets. I'd never heard what they were playing before. 
They were playing a piece called, uh, by a guy named Masorgsky, a, a piece called Pictures at an Exhibition. Just little pieces of music that were inspired by pictures that he'd seen at an exhibition. Thus the title. It was good. I was enjoying it all the way through. And then they got to this one big piece called The Great Gate of Kiev. I've never been to Kiev. I've seen a picture of this gate. It didn't do much for me, to be honest. But what it brought out of Mussorgsky brought something out of me that has to be real. When those hundred or so of the world's most talented musicians came uncorked on that movement, when those strings were all pulling in the same direction, the brass came in behind them and the percussion, I felt something in that moment, hearing it for the first time, not knowing where they were taking me, just riding that piece like a wave that, as far as I can tell, has no survival advantage. It doesn't just help the species keep going. There was something there, something of which there must be more. I'm paying attention to it in the relationships I have with people that I love, with you guys, with my family, noticing just how quickly things are changing, noticing how precious our connection to one another is, but how I can't hold on to it. You feel that? There's something amazing about being known and loved by somebody who's different from you, somebody who's got a consciousness and that's just as real as yours with their own experiences and their own interests and their own memories, but they know you and interact with you and they love you. There's something meaningful there that can't just go away, can it? I've been seeing it a lot in the way my six-year-old or six-month-old reacts when my wife walks in the room. He's got this just all-consuming, pure, enraptured, you might even say ravenous smile that comes over his face when he catches a glimpse of her. There's this involuntary spasm of delight that just shivers through his body and he grabs, if I'm holding him, he just grabs hold of me and he just buries his face because he can't take it. It's just too much. And then he lifts up for another look. That happens every time she walks in the room. Friends, there's got to be something in that that's more than what's passing away. There's something in our connection to one another that's, that's more than that. Maybe you tell me there's a survival advantage to having cute babies who adore you. I guess so. I, I suppose that that's probably true, but... But what good is a survival advantage if it only applies to the species? If it doesn't apply to my wife, to my six-month-old who sees her, not just species in general, but her and reacts that way. There must be something there. The Bible teaches us that every trace of beauty, everything meaningful and every part of our experience is just an echo just a foretaste of the beauty and meaning that we will know in full in God's presence. Every trace of joy and beauty, it's just a trace of something true in Him. Anything we enjoy now, we'll only enjoy fully when He is with us without a veil. We're beholding His face. We are changed, not just to enjoy and see that glory from a distance, but to experience it and to become part of it. Psalm 16 tells us that it's in your presence that there's fullness of joy.
In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Think about where your heart is crying out for more and there you get a little glimpse of what is unseen. There you see just a bit, maybe feel just a bit of the weight of glory. Now that doesn't mean that your afflictions aren't real. It doesn't mean that the problems of life just go away. It does mean that they aren't forever. It does mean that the problems of your life aren't insignificant. Because the most significant thing about them is that they're preparing for you in Christ an eternal weight of glory. Helping you see with the eyes of faith what Jesus has purchased for you as his gift. Father, these are eyes that no one comes with. They're eyes that are given when your spirit acts on us, does its work in us, that we can see and know the riches of the inheritance that you've prepared. Not one of us here this morning can see that without your help. I pray that you would help us all to see it in Jesus' name. Amen.